Welcome to this episode of Litigation Briefs, Media Shorts on Law and Courts. I'm Scott Dodson, a distinguished professor of law at UC Hastings College of the Law and the director of the Center for Litigation and Courts, which produces this series. The Supreme Court is constantly in the limelight and no one doubts its importance. Despite Alexander Hamilton famously calling the judiciary the least dangerous branch, the court has always been under fire for its seemingly politically partisan decision-making. Recently, however, it seems that appointments to the courts are more polarized than ever. Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, political opposites, were confirmed by the Senate with 98 and 96 yeses, respectively. That kind of agreement on the court seems like a pipe dream for the Senate today. With recent confirmations along narrow party line votes, the perception of the court as a neutral, apolitical institution of justice rather than of ideology has faded. Can the court's image be saved? And how might Congress do that? Here to help me with these questions is my guest, Dan Epps, a professor of law at Washington University Law School and the co-author of a recent paper titled, How to Save the Supreme Court. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Let's start with a bit of background on the court and the Constitution. What does the Constitution prescribe about the court? So honestly, not that much. Um, the Constitution says um, federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, uh, should hold their office during good behavior. Um, doesn't use the words life tenure, but that phrase has been understood uh, as meaning life tenure. Uh, Constitution mentions that there will be a chief justice uh, of the United States, uh, but then doesn't specify anything about the court's size. So it's up to Congress to decide uh, what the court's size will be. And it's also up to Congress to decide what the Supreme Court's jurisdiction will look like. What kinds of cases does the Supreme Court get to hear? What kinds of cases does the Supreme Court have to hear? Um, so there's a lot that's underspecified, um, but then th there's a lot that what you might describe that's the product of, of conventions, the way that it has always been done or the way that it's been done for a very long time. Constitution, as I said, doesn't specify the court's size um, and the, the court's size has changed, has been manipulated at various points in American history, but it hasn't changed for more than a century and a half. And so uh, a lot of people look at that and they say, well, you know, sure, Congress technically has the power to change the court's size, uh, but that's a real kind of political th third rail. Let's stay away from that, um, especially doing that for partisan reasons that would really set off everyone's uh, alarm bells. Um, but there is, you know, I think more uh, flexibility there uh, and less that's specified than people really assume if they don't know exactly what the Constitution says. Great. So um, the protection of life tenure and I think the, the appointment process uh, has kind of led to some charges that the court has been overtly political in its decision making. And I think the result has been some intense scrutiny of nominees to the court. Can you say a little bit about those charges and the current image of the court? Yeah, so let me say at the outset why I think this arises as a problem, which is that the court uh, is relatively small. It's been set at nine justices, as I said, for a century uh, and a half. And you combine that with life tenure. So justices um, sit for life uh, unless they're impeached, which is very, very hard to do. Impeached and removed, very, very hard to do. Um, and uh, they are, they're, uh, 
staying in office for longer and longer as people are living longer, um, as justices are maybe appointed a little bit younger. Uh, and then finally, um, the combination of fixed size and life tenure means that vacancies are somewhat unpredictable and random. Um, they're a product of two things, which are uh, one sort of strategic retirement, justices um, going out of their way to leave office during conditions when uh, a president and Senate who they sort of view as congenial are in a position to confirm uh, ideologically similar uh, replacement, uh, but also is driven by unpredictable things like when people get sick and die, um, as we saw with uh, Justice Ginsburg's uh, untimely death just um, a couple months before the 2020 uh, election. Um, and what that means is any given vacancy uh, is extremely high stakes and has the potential to really shift the law um, because uh, Supreme Court, you know, is really a very powerful policymaking institution, uh, put aside questions of whether you think uh, we should think of the court as just doing law, just or really just doing politics and policy. It, it is clear that who's on the court matters a lot, that they're really important questions the court decides um, that uh, ultimately are going to be a product of its membership. The court isn't divided on everything along ideological lines, but some of the most important questions uh, are divide the court on ideological lines. And um, in uh, my work uh, with Ganesh Tidaraman, we have highlighted these trends. We've noted how um, the process is getting increasingly polarized. We've noted how um, the legal universe. Uh, American law is becoming increasingly polarized. We have two different, basically competing uh, approaches to law, and we're starting to see more and more uh, voting that really lines up with um, partisan identification. And um, when we wrote uh, our article, it was published in 2019, we noted that um, with the appointment of uh, Justice Kavanaugh, you had a court that where ideology matched partisanship for the first time really uh, in American history um, as uh, my colleague, uh, Lee Epstein, who's uh, an expert on the sort of empirical analysis of the Supreme Court and Supreme Court ideology. Um, and uh, we argued that's, that's troubling and we argue that uh, that is going to really harm the legitimacy of the court, uh, particularly as um, the court, you know, reaches results that really track partisan identification. It will cause the court to be viewed in sort of we predicted uh, in a way um, that sees it as a more political institution. This is ultimately inconsistent with the idea of the court as doing something different than pure politics. And we think this is harmful to the rule of law. Now, that's a prediction. Um, and I think some people say, oh, let's look at the court now. Approval rating is, is not that much harmed. Maybe it takes a dip when there's um, a contentious confirmation, uh, then it goes back up. But I think our view is that it's gonna be dependent uh, a lot on what the court does. And some, something that we have seen historically is the court does kind of pull back from the brink, um, doesn't go kind of over the, the partisan abyss, um, people on the court moderate, even if not everyone in the court moderates. Um, and so in part driven by institutional considerations. And so I think um, at this moment, uh, I'm not gonna say, you know, the court's legitimacy is destroyed. I think that's not, um, something that I can establish consistent with uh, where we are in terms of public opinion. Um, but I think it's plausible to think we may be at the calm before the storm, that the court really has um, uh, uh, justices who are much more um, conservative and much more kind of 
uh, partisan identified uh, as well. You know, I, I think that's a fair thing that one can say about the Democratic appointed justices as well, that, that in many cases, important cases, their views kind of uh, line up with uh, partisan uh, ideology. But the court might be about to embark on a really uh, significant project of moving the law in a conservative direction and moving the law in a direction that is congenial to um, the National Republican Party. And if that comes to pass, if the court doesn't kind of pull back, um, I do think that we're going to see some very troubling uh, results in terms of how the court is perceived and whether it is perceived as a purely political institution or something else. So I do want to get to your preferred suggestions for how Congress might form the court. But before I get there, I guess I'd want to ask you, what are some other sort of um, current or um, in vogue proposals for reforming the court? Yeah, and this has uh, been an area that's just full of discussion recently. I think that the idea of structurally reforming the Supreme Court had not really been um, something that was seriously talked about uh, until a few years ago. Um, there had been a fair amount of discussion uh, in recent decades of term limits proposals um, as the main one that, that got some consideration. And the idea behind a term limits proposal is, and this is the most common version, although there are some other variations, is that each president would get to make two appointments to the court, um, one every two years. And uh, those justices would serve for 18 years, uh, staggered, such that uh, the result is um, basically you have one justice shuffling off the court every two years, a new justice joining the court, two-term president gets to appoint four, one-term president gets to appoint two, uh, and so forth. And uh, there's some details of how you design it, but the basic idea is this eliminates strategic retirement. Um, this eliminates the court's membership um, being kind of the contingent result of when people die and so forth and makes it correspond a little bit more to um, the results of uh, elections for president uh, and for Senate uh, in a more predictable way. Um, and my view is uh, that reform you know, would probably be better than the current system where it really is kind of random. You can have President Trump uh, gets three appointments to the court in one term. President Obama gets two in two terms. Uh, President Carter gets none in one term. Um, President Ford gets uh, one in um, less than a full term. Um, and I think that would be an improvement. Uh, and it has this sort of appeal. It sort of seems bipartisan. Uh, doesn't seem to favor uh, one side politically. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion about that. There are versions of that reform that attempt to implement it via statute rather than constitutional amendment. Um, you know, and that's why it's important that the, that the constitution doesn't stay life tenure. It says during good behavior and you can, there's different views on how to interpret that. Some people think that as long as the justices keep their offices, keep getting paid, um, and can still sit on lower courts after 18 years, it's fine. A lot of other people say that's clearly unconstitutional, um, but there have been efforts to do that. And in fact, there's uh, Democrats uh, in the House have actually put forward legislation that would do that by a statute. Um, but there are other proposals. Um, on the other extreme end, in terms of uh, less bipartisan, less good government, more kind of uh, partisan is the idea of court packing or court expansion, depending on depending on how you want to label it. And this would just be Congress enacting a statute that says now there are, you know, 13 seats on the court, 15 seats, whatever uh, whatever you want. Uh, and here there has been a proposal that put forward by Democrats, both in Congress and the Senate, to do that to create four more seats uh, that would uh, Biden uh, President Biden would be allowed to fill. 
Um, and the idea for this is this is kind of uh, retaliation. This is kind of uh, making right um, what was uh, what went wrong with how the Republicans handled Supreme Court uh, nominations uh, at the end of uh, the Obama presidency when they refused to let Obama appoint someone, and then at the end of the Trump presidency when they allowed President Trump to uh, appoint um, uh, Justice uh, Barrett um, mere days before the presidential election. Uh, and so uh, appeal of this is that it's pretty clearly constitutional. Uh, as said before, um, the court, you know, the court size is not specified in the constitution. So clearly there's a role for, for Congress in setting the court size. Uh, Congress has manipulated the court size, uh, previous points in American history. Um, most people uh, argue that when it, the court did so, it was for political reasons and not just for sort of neutral good government reasons, although there's a, there's a little bit of a historical uh, debate on that. Uh, Josh Braver um, at uh, Wisconsin has argued that that's not the case. Um, I'm not going to settle that here. Um, but, you know, it, it does seem like even if it's a partisan move, it probably is constitutional. It's hard to come up with a theory for why that's unconstitutional. Uh, but it's seen as, as just a partisan power grab. And um, the argument against it is it would um, delegitimize the court quite significantly, and it would create um, a battle of retaliation where the other side would feel the necessity of packing back uh, once it's uh, in power. Um, and then there's uh, a range of other uh, proposals, some you know, sort of tinkering with the court's uh, certiorari process. Uh, one would be um, limiting the court's jurisdiction, what we call jurisdiction stripping, um, as mentioned earlier, uh, Congress has power to define the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. And so in theory, um, Congress could say, you know, the Supreme Court just doesn't get to decide certain categories of cases. Uh, we're gonna let the lower courts decide that, or maybe we'll just uh, not adjudicate those in the federal court system uh, at all and just sort of get the court out of this field. Um, and that's a possibility too. Um, there's upsides and downsides to that reform. Um, but those are some of the, I'd say, the leading contenders uh, in terms of reform. Great. And so what are your suggestions for how Congress can save the court? Yeah, so uh, Ganesh Dinaraman and I um, put our heads together a few years ago um, and uh, sort of said, look, this is something that, that people are going to be really thinking about in the coming years. Um, the way the court has been handled politically uh, and the stakes involved are, are going to make it such that Democrats are, are going to really start asking questions that people haven't asked in many, many decades since the 1930s, when uh, in 1937, uh, President Roosevelt proposed uh, a plan that would have allowed him to name as many as six additional justices, uh, driven by his dis dissatisfaction uh, by conservative rulings limiting his New Deal agenda, um, although he didn't frame it to the public that way. That plan was ultimately uh, defeated uh, politically, um, sort of seeming to seal this norm that you don't mess with the court size, but now all of that stuff is back on the table. And so we sort of said, look, here are the different proposals that are floating out there. Um, that we, we see them all as kind of imperfect uh, in some way. Um, we see objections to uh, term limits. Um, uh, you know, one objection is, uh, you know, it could change the justices' behavior, could actually make them more partisan. It actually makes uh, elections uh, even more focused on the Supreme Court than they are right now, because you always know ex ante, there are two seats on the court at stake. Um, there could be, you know, the court could be 5-4, the 5-4 majority could hang in the balance with every presidential election. Um, and that might actually raise the political temperature. Um, 
jurisdiction stripping. Uh, we see a lot of practical problems with that. Um, uh, and uh, court packing, you know, we, we note the objections that it really um, could result uh, in a court that is seen as, as purely partisan and could diminish respect for the rule of law. So we said, what are some ideas that we could put forward um, that uh, we think could actually restore some kind of sane equilibrium uh, and maybe be something that ultimately uh, both sides in the political process could live with, even if it's not everyone's first choice. And we actually came up with two um, in, in part because we weren't you know, totally confident in what the one right answer is, but also uh, as a strategy of sort of showing people, let's, let's think a little bit outside the box. Let's think um, more creatively. And so uh, one of them uh, we call the lottery court. And the idea there is just expand uh, the court uh, in this way, make every judge of the Court of Appeals also formally designated a Supreme Court justice. The court is going to sit in randomly drawn panels, um, although uh, we, we may tinker with the randomness a little bit to ensure some level of partisan balance to, to prevent uh, extreme ideological skews between panels. Um, uh, panels that select the cases are not going to be the same ones that decide those cases, and so there's a little bit less of an agenda-driven Supreme Court and uh, the relationship between uh, appointments and outcomes is much more contingent. You know a court of appeals judge is going to decide some cases uh, on the Supreme Court, but you don't know, okay, now we're getting, we're replacing the swing justice and now we can do all this stuff uh, we wanna do. Um, the other one uh, we call the balance bench uh, and this for whatever reason, this one has gotten a little bit more play. It ultimately was the proposal that uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg as a presidential candidate in the Democratic primary uh, endorsed and really got behind and, and uh, gave us a lot of attention, uh, boosted our SSRN downloads for which we're grateful. Um, and the idea here is it's really an analogy to um, one common system in civil arbitration. That's where the original idea came from and we were thinking about it. Uh, and in that system, you have kind of two sides have a dispute and they each pick an arbitrator and the two arbitrators agree amongst themselves to pick a, a kind of a neutral. And we said, you know, that seems like kind of a good system for a situation where we have these two kind of warring ideologies and no likelihood of kind of common ground super soon. So let's design the court this way. We'll have, um, 15 justices, five of them will be in some way kind of reserved for Democrats, appointments by Democratic presidents and so forth. Five of them will be in some way reserved for Republicans. Um, and there's different ways mechanically to do that. Uh, but then for the other five, so you've got 10 total, five and five, the other five, um, the justices are gonna have to collectively agree amongst themselves to designate uh, certain court of appeals judges to sit by them, sit with them by designation for a year. Uh, and if they don't do that, they just don't get to decide cases at all. And the rationale for that being um, that the incentives there are not to pick the most ideologically extreme, but actually pick um, among the pool of Court of Appeals judges, those that are seen more as kind of uh, you know, middle of the road, moderate, uh, straight shooters, not ideologues. Um, and uh, basically, you know, this is, a, this is what we call like a power sharing system. Basically, you know, we recognize the court is a really powerful institution. Um, and rather than just continuing to fight over who gets the bare majority, uh, let's just kind of divvy it up. Um, and then we can maybe stop fighting about it politically so much uh, going forward. Um, for both of these proposals, uh, there are, you know, and I won't um, minimize them, there, you know, there's serious constitutional objections to them. Our goal was to show that there are at least 
plausible arguments for why these aren't unconstitutional. There's many things in current law that sort of look like this. Um, and uh, we could imagine a world where Democrats sort of, rather than ramming through court packing, uh, they say, look, let's, let's, let's try something that looks like this. It's a little bit more of a good government uh, type reform. Um, and that ultimately maybe could produce uh, an equilibrium that people can live with, even if it's not uh, everybody's first choice. That's uh, really interesting stuff, Dan. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show and for helping us understand how Congress can fix the Supreme Court. All right, my pleasure. Thanks, Scott. This episode was produced by the Center for Litigation and Courts at UC Hastings College of the Law. If you enjoyed this episode of Litigation Briefs, I hope you'll tune in to future episodes. In fact, I hope you'll consider subscribing to our YouTube channel and audio podcast, which can be accessed through the center website at sites.ucastings.edu CLC. While you're at it, encourage a friend to do the same. This is Litigation Briefs, respectfully submitted, Scott Dodson. <laughs>